this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy with I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here today with Sinead Keltz. She's one of our clients way in the beginning when I first started as president of the Restorative Community Coalition clear back in 2006. And Shanae is a delightful person who's done an enormous amount of personal growth and change in the past 10 years, 13 years. And she's now one of our case managers and uh, case interceptor people. And we're here to hear from her about what happened after she listened to last week's I Change Justice podcast, where we interviewed a person who works in a juvenile prison in Washington State. Talk to us, Shanae. Hi, everybody. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Joy, for letting me come and uh, just give you my thoughts and experiences. Um, Thank you to our listeners. I just have to say, wow. You know, that interview with Mr. Gold was really eye-opening. It was really sensitive to what I went through as a kid, but One of the main things that really stood out to me was his realization, being a professional working in there with these kids and hearing where they came from. You know, the families that these kids come from who are uh, charged with felonies, it, it just, it's always been a conundrum in my mind how these children can be charged with something yet their core family unit is not held accountable. I guess, in some kind of way, you know, it's like, um, and that's, you know, really what restorative justice is, right? It's like treating the whole family. And not only that, but I mean, child protective services, we think is there for a purpose, you know, but really, are they, are they really there when they really need to be there? Are they doing what they can do uh, in the capacity of their professional life? You know, hearing Jerry's heartfelt feelings and experience and his perspective on these kids and how they need somebody there. They need someone to tell them they're valuable. They need someone to tell them there's a different way. They don't have to be, you know, a product of their environment. Um, It just really hit me because it reminded me of things that, you know, obviously I've done a lot of work on Uh, my past and my experiences, you know, therapy and 12-step programs and sponsorship and all these things that are in place for people to kind of work through all the trauma and violence that we've experienced. But there comes a time where you take that realization that you've experienced, yes, all these violence and traumas, but then you realize, am I doing that to other people and relationships in my life, right? Am I carrying those nuances or behaviors from those experiences into new relationships and new places. And some of the things, you know, when he said that there was a child who had been sexually assaulted, and then he said he followed that up with a percentage rate of those children that are incarcerated who have been sexually or, or physically assaulted or abused, 
it was like, for me, it was like, well, duh, right? But for the rest of the world and people listening, I think that that's going to be really surprising for most people. One, because we don't talk about those things, right? I mean, your family unit is private. You don't talk about things that happen outside with other people. So for him to have that position inside that system and have a way in, right? He has an in with these kiddos outside of that trauma and abuse to where he could actually step in and kind of really give them an opportunity to, to choose a different path. Now I did notice in some of his, um, his podcasts too, he had that conundrum like, like, yeah, we're going to rehabilitate these kids, but then we're sending them right back to the same circumstance, same environment, you know, and that happens not only with kids, but with adults too. I mean, we expect, um, you know, an adult, you're supposed to grow up. Oh, you should learn your lesson, you know, and then you go and do some time in treatment or jail. And then you go right back to the same place you were quote living, which is like not even, close to living, but it's chaos, it's crisis, everyone's in financial crisis, some kind of crisis is going on. And you're going right back to that after you've just been filled with all this good stuff, and you you believe in yourself. And and that happened to me. I mean, there were, you know, I went to treatment five different times before I turned 19 years old. And yeah, that's a different, that's a different angle. Because when I was listening to that recording, or not mm-hmm. listening, listening, inter- actually interviewing him, and then went back and listened to it. I can't even tell you how shocking it was for me to realize that having worked in the justice, restorative justice, rehabilitation, all these conversations for 13 years, Mm -hmm. I did not know. I honest did not really know until we met him that we had a juvenile prison full of Mm -hmm. juvenile kids incarcerated for felonies for some reason that just sort of escaped the conversation it wasn't talked about anywhere i knew we had a juvenile jail in downtown bellingham but that was like pre-felony it wasn't kids that are going to be put away in a prison in a full lockdown prison that only had some services available for rehabilitation and a lot of these kids are serving years of sentence before they get out and when they come out there's no nothing happened to the families like the families didn't go through rehab the kid comes back out where's he gonna go and i was watching you know how and thinking about how you would feel having gone to prison as a juvenile or as a you know you've been arrested you've dealt with all this stuff who was there to help correct your family or correct you when you came back out or help you bridge the gap it was it was shocking to me you know, I had I not been involved with the IF project for a short period of time, that being involved in that program when I was, it really opened my eyes as well because, you know, I, I can remember a significant um, moment when a 10-year-old boy was telling me his story that he was locked up for possession of heroin at 10 years old. Oh my gosh. Ten. Yeah. And, you know, me doing drugs, you know, experimenting with marijuana and alcohol at age 14, 15 was young, you know, that was young, but this 10 year old boy who was, you know, probably the same size as my six year old daughter is telling me, you know, this story. And I just, I, 
I just was like, oh my gosh, you know, what is going on at home? And that's the thing. It's like, you know, backing up a little what you were saying about the systems and the family treatment, right? Like if, even if I had been, um, in juvenile detention, uh, which I didn't go to juvenile detention because my grandfather was friends with a lot of the police. And when I did steal for the first time and got caught, he just went to them and said, you know, I'll take care of this and pretended to put me on house arrest, which now I know I wasn't, I was just grounded. Um, So he was enabling my behavior. However, you know, if we think about it for how many years and how many different families that we interact with, when someone makes a mistake, for some reason, we have this idea that that's their issue. They're the one that's in trouble. We didn't have anything to do with that bad mistake that you made. You did that, you know, and I think that that goes across all systems, just like the criminal legal system. They give you a case number. You've committed a crime. Now you're going to do X, Y, and Z, and then you're satisfying your judgment, right? That's satisfaction of judgment. But it's not. It's not. Just because you go and get a number and then you get you get sentenced to a specific amount of time based on what these books say or what whoever says, that doesn't solve the problem. It's not going to stop you from doing it again because it's not really addressing why you're doing it. And I think that's a big, big thing with restorative justice is that we are addressing why did you end up in this position? Not, not what can we do now to help you, but let's go back. Let's back the train up a little and let's talk about what got you there. What was your thinking? Let's see if we can correct the way you're thinking and your perspective. And that should go across all different professions. I mean, it should be employer based. It should be criminal legal based. That should be anywhere you go. When you make a choice that's not a healthy choice and someone calls you out on it, that same person I believe is then responsible for addressing why you did it. Like, let's talk about why you did it. You know, I mean, I'm doing that with my six-year-old daughter and thank God I have been through what I've been through because I get the opportunity to sit down with her when she does do something that is disrespectful or breaking a rule. We get to talk about, well, what led up to it? Why did you choose that choice and not a better choice? You know what I mean? And that's really where it comes in. That's what I believe. And it's actually critical that you have the chance to reconstruct. You have the chance to redeem yourself. You have the chance to say, I'm sorry. You have the chance to say, what can I do to fix it? You have the chance Mm -hmm. to say, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. I -hmm. didn't know. And there's Mm -hmm. like, it was fascinating for me to listen to him because he spent 12 years, Jerome Gold, he's the author of uh, Children in Prison. But and that was last episode. But when he talked about violence begets violence Mm -hmm. and he started to talk about how if we don't break the violence chain at the point of origin or as early in the point of origin as possible, we can't expect kids to self-correct because guess Mm -hmm. who they learned it from? They learned it from their teachers, their leaders, their preachers. The law enforcement agency itself, I mean, that's one of the things I'm talking about in uh, Whatcom County right now, and that I'm talking about with law enforcement CEOs across the nation. If our Mm -hmm. law enforcement CEOs are running the law and justice system as a chief executive officer, as the financial person responsible for bringing in taxes, Mm -hmm. guess what? He's not there to rehabilitate the people. He's not there to change the system. He's there to get funding for the system. So the police officers 
are having to hit on the front lines dealing with real street violence, trying to solve problems, and they're being hit with things that are a problem. But the CEO, the sheriff himself, not the sheriff's deputies, not the police officers, not Mm -hmm. the rehab officers, not the corrections officers, all of those people work within the system and they have to live within the rules of the system. And the money to manage all that comes down to the sheriff. And the sheriff doesn't have a reason because he's running budgets. He's running numbers. He's there to convince the public to give them more taxes, to give them more money, to give them more authority, to give them more power. And that's a contradiction of terms. Mm -hmm. So often, I mean, I was really struck by his comment, violence begets violence. Mm -hmm. What do you want to say about that? Having been in the system, lived in the system as a juvenile, tried to correct the system or yourself as as a young adult, trying to deal with the system afterwards, dealing with the violence of all these colleges and universities and systems that make you either fit within the system, be punishment 10 years later. I mean, there's just violence after violence after violence. Talk about that, because honestly, I don't know what you had to go through. I would love to talk about that. We'll be right back after this break. Today's podcast is being brought to you by the Restorative Community Coalition, a nonprofit organization committed to serving the voiceless, especially those silenced by civic trauma. We received contributions from the community to fund research, education, direct services, mentoring, case interception, court navigation, restorative justice, and more. Beyond our operating costs, our long-term capital goal is to build the Restore a Life Center, a hub for housing, employment, education, life skills recovery, including a farm for sustainable living. It is designed to help our community reduce civic trauma, mitigate conflict, promote rehabilitation, and encourage regenerative local living economic development. Please donate at the restorativecommunity.org. This is Joy Gilfellan, host of I Change Justice, and our guest today is Shanae Kelts. So come back and talk to us about your real experience. That's where we were when we paused. Mm-hmm. Violence begets violence. What does that mean to you, having been on all sides of this thing? Because I don't know. So violence begets violence. Um, my first realization of that was when I was in prison and I had violently Uh, beat up another inmate. And once I realized that what I did affected not only her, but also her child, uh, it was an open, an opener for me. Like uh, that was my opening to realize that my choices and my behaviors are not just affecting myself and the person, um, you know, that I've hurt physically or financially or whatever, but also it ripples out to other people. Right. And so that was my point of taking uh, accountability finally. And so what I was lucky enough to experience in prison were relationships with people who were in there for extremely violent crimes who were now teaching classes and courses on nonviolent communication, on finding your voice, on your valuable, you know, those kinds of things. And so once I had these, these friendships and relationships with these women, it was like, I actually had something to, to go off of, you know, I mean, coming from 
uh, a household uh, from the age of birth to six years old that was nothing but violence, being beaten nearly to death, abused, neglected, abandoned, then moving in with my grandparents who then were, um, you know, upper middle class, uh, you know, never gone without food, always had bath, you know, those basic needs were met, but the lack of communication and emotional support was then another form of violence. You know, there's all these different forms of violence that we don't really take into account. We think that it's just physical, you know, you touch me, I touch you, whatever. But also then I had my father, right? Like my grandparents that raised me, that was my father's parents. And my father was in prison, in and out of prison. And he was a fighter. I mean, my dad was a bare hand boxer. He would go and get paid hundreds of dollars to go fight people underground boxing back in the day. And my mother, her nickname was Insano Delano. She was also a fighter. Um, and I knew these things about my parents, but I didn't know why, right? We just think um, they're just violent. They're just a person who's violent. Well, what I've learned in the last 10 years is number one, my father was also abused, you know, by my grandfather who raised me. He was also, you know, neglected emotionally and mentally and probably physically abused as well because, you know, spanking people still spank. I, I got it. I'll fast forward to that. I'll get back to that spanking thing in a minute. But, um, so then my mother, I found out the reason why she was violent is she was abused by her grandfather. You know, like there is a reason why people are violent. They're just not like have a violent bone in their body. It's not because they're indigenous persons. It's not because they're drinking. It's not because of the drugs. It's nothing. It's it's the, the back it up. And it's because of some kind of abuse or trauma that happened when they were a child. Yeah. And they think that that's how they have to defend themselves. And it's copied, learned behavior. You Absolutely. What the leader, you follow the leader. What do we do internationally? What do we do nationally? When our leaders are violent, that's giving us permission. Not only giving us permission, it's giving us the template for us to become violent. So mm -hmm. the more bullying we have in our political system by political leaders, the more bullying we have in the police system that gives permission for leaders the more bullying, I mean, I started to watch the bullying that was happening in our court systems. Mm -hmm. When public defenders or prosecutors would bully other prosecutors or other public defenders, or they bullied the people that were their clients. I mean, I'll never forget sitting there listening when one of our clients was in there and he said, my prosecutor, my public defender just lied. What am I supposed to say? Well, how are you going to, to get call out your prosecutor or the defender if they're lying about your case? And so I brought it up to this attorney later after the incident. And I said, how is it that you can do this? And he said, it's my job to represent them. And I tell my clients, don't you ever say anything on that stand. Do not defend yourself. Defend me. Don't call me. Nothing. I'm here to run the game and it's your job to shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. And I just went, wow, that's not what I thought that this you're, ha you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. Mm -mm. No, he was guilty because of the way the defense attorney was working the case mm -hmm. to try to make a deal on these things. And I started waking up going, man, was I naive. So imagine yeah. that if I'm a little 14-year-old or a 10-year-old and somebody tells me to go do something and they're my leader, my boss, my preacher, my the law enforcement that I'm supposed to mind, what are you going to do? You're going to mind mm -hmm. them. 
And then you take the consequence and they get away with everything. That's I believe a rush situation. Absolutely. I think it's a false sense of power and pride that comes from being in a powerful position. I mean, just look at our culture and how we rely on family physicians, right? Yeah. And I think this is a really good topic too, is because, you know, you go to your doctor, you rely on them. For some reason, we put them up on this pedestal, but people are starting to be more aware and take more responsibility over their own stuff that they're speaking up, they're speaking out, they're getting second opinions. And so, uh, you know, getting another opinion is your right. I mean, if you get an attorney, and even if you're paying them and they do something shady, it's your right to get a different attorney. It's your right to petition the court and say, hey, I'm not feeling equally represented, da, 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 da. Just like the doctor, you want a second opinion, you go get a second opinion. There's the option to do that. But I feel like we've been bogged down by all of this um, violence, right? And that we don't, uh, we don't speak up for ourselves. It, it's, it's horrible. We have this, this whole nation full of people who are just doing what they were taught instead of realizing. And even if they do realize that they're doing the wrong thing, they continue to do the wrong thing because they're afraid they're going to hurt their caregiver or whoever brought them up. They're going to hurt their feelings or something like, I can't disrespect my grandma and this is supposed to be the right thing. And she said it was the right thing. So I have to keep doing it. No, you don't. You don't have to keep doing something just because somebody above you or you feel is above you told you to do it. You do not. And so that's that part that like comes right back around, you know, now that I'm a mother, I mean, I had two sons I didn't get to raise because I didn't think I knew how to be a mom because I still had violence and I still had all these things going on. And now I'm a mom to a little girl who is sassy as ever. And she, she has a mind of her own and I'm glad for that. But at the same time, it's like my opportunity to teach her to have your own mind, to speak up when you think something's not right, you know, and she doesn't have very many friends because she does speak up when things aren't right. Or when somebody's not being nice to somebody, she speaks up for that person. And, and God forbid, she doesn't have very many friends, but you know what? I told her it's better to have a couple really good friends that you can be real and honest with than to have a bunch of fake friends. And that's really like the bottom line. You know, you can't continue to wish that we had this peaceful planet and then still believe that what you were taught was a hundred percent true. You know, it's just not, it's not. <laughs> and so, I and, and our sales, our sales systems, our training <laughs> systems, all the stuff that we're taught on television, you know, mm -hmm. one of my friends wrote a song one time called the TV God. It's Dana Lyons. He's a local uh, musician and he wrote a song called the TV God. And it's the funniest song. But when I listened to it, it made me cry a lot. And it's because when the television came out, the TV God was in the master. He was that TV was in the master's position at every dinner table while people were watching the news or want finishing up a movie or doing whatever, the TV God was the one that, that told you what to do, what to buy, who to buy it, what to think, everything to do. And it's like we abdicated our position as adults in the family. And we put this TV God up there and no one cross-examines the violence mm -hmm. that coming off that TV. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in 2000, when the, when the market shifted between 1998 and 2003, we had massive downloaded new ethics, new morals, new truth, new stories, new entertainment, 
new stupid stuff. I mean, the violence coming out of our TV systems is absolutely extraordinary. And then what I listen to is adults today, our baby boomers and our silent generation sit here and say, I don't know where those kids learned it. I don't know why the kids are sad. I don't understand why we're having suicides. I don't understand why we have violence where teenagers are going and shooting up elementary schools. And I'm not trying to be rough here. It's mm -hmm. a fact. Violence does beget violence when you learn it and you're taught it and you're pretended. We actually make a massive amount of money on violence in our marketplace in America mm -hmm. today. And if we don't turn that around, if we don't start looking at that, we don't have a chance of turning around the problems we got. And I'll tell you what, listening to Jerome talk about children in prison, that mm -hmm. was a wake-up call. That was the past episode. Let's take a quick break and we'll come right back. This is Joy Gilfellen, host of I Change Justice podcast. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find links to them and a list of our donors on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. You can also donate to support our direct services and our restorative community outreach and initiatives by clicking on the donate button. Hello, welcome back to I Change Justice podcast with our guest, Sinead Kelts. Talk to us about your last thoughts about what is it that you would like to convey to people with all the lived experience that you have working on so many different sides of this this law and justice system, restorative justice, redemptive justice, uh, economic justice. You know, you've been fighting for people to get economic parity when they're coming out of the system and the, the bureaucratic injustices stack up and people are facing these massive things. The violence is incredible. It's systemic. It's past pandemic. And we don't even recognize it because we're so indoctrinated to it how would you see us just tell us what you're thinking because you've got to be in a different place than I am yeah I feel like if you're listening to this podcast no matter where you work where you live what your family situation is I encourage you in fact I challenge you to take a look at your morals and values Make a list. Think about where you learned those morals and values and have you really implemented them in every area of your life? And are they really healthy morals and values? Because I did a program by Beth Moore called Breaking Free and it was a workbook and it was, I don't know, eight weeks or something. And it really had you write out pretty much every belief that you have, where it came from, who it came from, and how you've applied it to your life, and whether or not the outcome of those morals and values has been good or bad. And then it gives you the opportunity to take accountability and change the ones that aren't turning out so great, you know? And that's the thing of being honest. You have to be really 100% honest with yourself. And I think that's really hard for a lot of people because we want people to believe a certain thing about us. And therefore, sometimes we put our morals and values aside because of saving our face instead of our butt. And that's a saying in the recovery world. You know, are you going to save your face or are you going to save your butt? And so I think 
that that is a big one. You know, I don't think that there are very many programs that address your false beliefs. And I think the the uh, perception of thinking that you have any false beliefs is a conundrum also because it makes you believe that you are less than maybe. Maybe it makes you believe that you are uh, incapable. You are, um, you know, your ego gets in the way. You know, um, there's some fear of, you know, not wanting to say bad things about the people who raised you or the environment that you were raised in out of respect, quote, respect, right? And that's another one, like that should be on your list. Where did I learn respect? Where did it come from? Really quickly also, you know, I did spank my daughter when she was two and a half and it wasn't like I didn't beat her or anything, you know, but I'd swat her on the butt if she literally looked at me and threw something on the ground while she's looking at me doing it just out, you know, out of like, ha ha ha, she's trying my patience or pushing the envelope. However, after doing Breaking Free, I changed that. We, we, how am I going to teach her not to be violent when I'm spanking her butt, it's totally the opposite of what I want to teach her. And so those things, you know, that's one small piece of it. I mean, you can't expect somebody to not be violent when you're being violent. I mean, it just makes zero sense. It's insanity doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We need to get out of insanity and get into healing in all areas of our communities. And that's what I believe. Well, I know that when, thank you for that, because that's really a different way of looking at should I or should I not do these things? A lot of people use, you know, external, they told me I should, or they told me I shouldn't, you know, when you're actually looking at the results after the fact, the day that I realized at one point that when I got upset as this little boy in my house, I'm like four times bigger than him. I'm a monster. I am a monster. And something happened that caused me to start to scream at him Mm -hmm. because I had PMS. My excuse Mm -hmm. was I had PMS. My excuse was I had postpartum depression. My excuse was I was overwrought. Well, what's he going to learn from that? Mm -hmm. I terrify him. He shuts down. What did I accomplish? Honest to gosh, what did I accomplish? Right. And so I learned not to do that. But it took, you know, how many years had he already been raised with a crazy screaming mother because mm-hmm. of, you know, imbalances in my physical system? And everybody else did. My God, I didn't yell anymore or even as much as most of the other parents that I saw around. (laughs) And people would give me all kinds of advice and I was gentler than normal. But then I looked back at it and I went, wow, what is a model? If If I'm a leader, if I'm really a leader and I'm raising my child to be relevant and rational and to talk with me, I need to teach them how to be relevant, rational, reasonable, so they can talk to me. And I was really proud in middle school at one point, one of my sons came to me and I had made this decision that there's no way that any of my kids were going to play, I think it was football at the time. And my son came to me one day and he said, mom, why are you making that decision? It's my decision. I need to play. I know that I could get hurt. I know, you know, and he went through all these rational things that I had taught him already about being rational. 
-hmm. And he said, I'm not going to be doing this. I will be doing that. I'm aware of this and this and this. And he said, so what's going to be the harm in my doing this for, and, and he had everything logically lined up. And I still don't like football from the standpoint of the amount of concussions that it can cause, but his rationality in talking about it was off the charts. Mm -hmm. And I went, okay, because I taught him to talk to me logically. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so that really was well, the longer the boys got older as they were able to come back to me and have real conversations about real things that were really going on. And it, mm -hmm. and it really mattered. <laughs> so today yeah. when, we're, when we're trying to work with clients who are coming through the system, when the system is really irrational and it doesn't make any sense, when you have a person who's a mother with three kids and she can't pay off $20,000 in fines and fees that were racked up because of interest and because of bureaucratic red tape, and you're going to jump her payment from $100 a month or whatever it was to $500 a month, and she can barely live with three children, and right now she's employed, she's raising her kids, she's and you're going to throw her into default so that then she's going to end up with a warrant issued and she's going to end up going back to prison. What are we doing this for? It doesn't even make any sense. Zero. So we have to go back and relook at how we do the justice system. Mm -hmm. We've done a lot of good things over the past 10 years. But when COVID came along, it changed the way that justice was run because suddenly the sheriff and the prosecutor and the, the people who work inside the justice system were insulated behind a closed door and they could do whatever they wanted. And now, two years later, guess what? We have some problems in the streets. Why is that? Because the services that used to be available to people for the last two years have not been available and it's hurt us. So using violence, restricting people with violence, issuing more paper warrants, Pretending that these things are helping when they're actually contraindicated actually doesn't work. And no, it doesn't work at all. And I also want to say real quick, I don't mean to jump in, but um, it's a thing. We're trying to control everything, right? Like right. we're, we're going to control these people by doing X, Y, and Z. And, you know, and, and the reason why it doesn't work is because you can't control every single person. You can't even control yourself. Especially so when the, yeah, especially when the control issue is emotions. The yes. rules and emotions are two completely different things. One of the things that came up in last week's call was he said, what we're trying to do is create these cookie cutter best practices and bring in people who have the training, they have the degree, but in fact, the kids don't relate to them just because you've got a degree doesn't mean that you know how to talk to these, these young people. Yep. And so it was essential. One of the things that he really advocated inside the juvenile justice system, not juvenile justice, inside the juvenile prison system, was that he needed to have these opportunities to talk to the kids as real people, not as yes. counselors, not as trainers, as real human beings dealing with real human stuff. Because when they come out, they're going to be dealing with real human stuff. Yep. Yeah, he even said that he wasn't trained in that. I mean, when his friend said you should apply here, he's like, I'm not a counselor. He even no, told he us was that. A veteran. 
Yeah, he's never taken psychology classes or therapy classes or any of that stuff. What he did was he got on their level and he related to them and he was open and he was honest and he spoke up for them and he defended them, you know, and they probably never have had a single person defend them in their life. And that was my problem. Not one time have I had unconditional love, no matter what. There was always stipulations. It was do this and you get this, do that and you get this. If you don't do that, then you don't get this. It was always a threat, you know, a push a pull. My husband is the first person I've ever had a relationship with that I don't expect anything from him. He doesn't expect anything from me. And we can unconditionally love each other through our arguments, through our differences, through everything together. And I've never had that before. You know, yeah, my mom and dad and everybody, oh, I love you and all stuff. That no, it love that that's that's another topic that I think we can talk about too, you know, is <laughs> like what does that even mean? Because I think that we have a really skewed vision of what that is. Yeah, when when we sit down and I was listening to that, and then I, I started thinking about how are we gonna talk about restorative justice in the future? How are we going to build a vision for a regenerative system that actually puts people back to work? We've got so many people that are quitting the system. People are being taught how to, I mean, they've learned in the last two years of COVID, the number of people who have quit, the number of people who don't want to be police officers anymore, the number of people who won't show up as mental health counselors. Well, the reason is we've actually, there's a term I use called the rev, we've rev limited. When you race cars, which I did, I autocross cars. And if you're going as fast as your particular car can run in a particular car gear, you can rev limit, over rev the engine, you can blow the, blow the engine. And I believe that what we've done in Whatcom County and in many places across our nation, we've rev limited on the capacity to hold people in jail, punish them, continue to fine and punish them, punish all their families and do the the abuse that we've done within a system that doesn't have any moral corrections. How do you correct a corrections officer? How do you correct a sheriff that's out of bounds? How do you correct prosecutors or defense attorneys? There isn't any way to do it. And oftentimes in our political system, we say, well, the only way to correct them is to vote them out of office. Well, you know what? If somebody has the domination position and they have all the blue shield behind them, and they have their power and their privilege and their authority, and they've been running that power, privilege, and authority for eight years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years in Whatcom County, who's going to buck up against somebody who's, who's controlled the law, the jail and justice system, and the economy in Whatcom County for 30 to 40 years? And people will look at me and they go, Joy, what are you talking about? It's not like that. Well, you proved to me that it's not like that because after 30 years of diagramming this, I've realized that that is exactly the problem we have. We have leaders telling leaders who tell leaders who rope up the whole story and we live in a world of absolute denial. And I'll tell you what, listening to Jerome Gold last week talk about the juvenile prison, I, honest to gosh, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I'm not, it's not like I'm so smart. I should have known. It would make sense to me. I even, I've heard of the prison. I've known kids that have gone there, but it didn't register because until I opened my ears to a whole new way of seeing what's going on, I couldn't see what was going on. And that's what we have to do right now. Start listening to what's actually going on in our streets. 
<laughs> so you said, how do we hold those badge holders, law enforcement, judicial system folks accountable, right? And so it seems to always be kind of a paper trail, like, oh, you can file a complaint with the department, right? Right. Well, who's going to go and talk to them about why they made the choice they made? Let's back up. If you're, if you're continuously getting complaints filed against you, typically what happens is you're on suspension. You get paid, you know, paid leave, let's say. You get paid leave, there's an investigation, you get suspended, you know, how that goes. But is there really somebody in there that's going, what led up to the choices that made you choose to behave this way? Or what, what is it that you think that you could have done different? I mean, wh- who's in charge of that? Because that's really my heart is for restorative justice to not only be obviously for our clients, but definitely should be within the professional system. You know, there should be accountability and, you know, their realization that they're just people too. They're doing a job. They must have had some kind of trauma or crisis to make them to believe that the choices that they're making are the healthiest choices or healthier than those that they're serving. Right. And so we, that's the biggest thing for me is, you know, people are, you know, this lot, let's, let's talk about the, um, like uh, law enforcement, especially like violence in law enforcement, right? So say like there's an investigation, there's a shooting that happens, the officers are then, their guns are handed over, their badges are handed over, they're placed on suspension, there's a big investigation, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But who's the person, whether it's the, what is that, internal services or internal affairs that meets with them, are they really trained in restorative justice? Are they sitting there going, Okay, you did do a crime. Let's say they did commit the crime. They did shoot the gun. They shouldn't have shot the gun. Okay, well, now everybody's going, put him in jail, put him in jail. So now we take this act of violence, and now it's spread to the community, which then turns into violence towards the person who committed the crime. And then that, it just keeps going bigger and bigger, like the, like an atom bomb, you know, the yeah. cloud just keeps yep. getting bigger. Instead of everybody taking a second, and going, hey, I wonder what it was in their life that made them choose that at that very moment. Were they abused? Were they afraid? You know, and why were they afraid? I mean, that that's a, that's what psychology is all about. You know, it's like, let's figure out the why and treat that person as somebody that's in need, you know, just like somebody that's on dope. Let's say you have a friend who's when somebody's out there that you know, or maybe it's somebody somebody else knows, and they're out there and they're smoking fentanyl pills and they're robbing and stealing to support their habit, there's two reactions I typically get. F them, let them die. That's one reaction. And the other reaction is treat them like they have cancer because addiction is a disease. And when you're a cancer patient, you have to go and you get immunotherapy and you get chemotherapy and you have to treat it on a daily basis. So they have a disease it's called addiction. And if they don't get treatment and intervention so that they can handle it on a daily basis, then, you know, then maybe they'll die. But I don't see us taking that same logic of treating it like they, they need help. They have, you know, cancer, they need some assistance. They need all the help they can get to help save their life. And I feel like if we could take that same mind frame and put it in these um, different situations where violence is happening, like they're, they, they're just somebody who's sick and they need help. They need a different perspective, you know, and not everybody, obviously we do have the ones that need to be probably medicated and locked up or whatnot. But I'm just saying like, 
in every situation, if we can treat each person as if they have uh, a, a terminal illness and that we could help intervene in that, then that could probably help. And, and that might help some people who do have, you know, I, I always say the older generations because most of the people in my generation are pretty like open and speak up and speak out. But, you know, um, or maybe conservative, more conservative folks, it might give them the idea to open their mind up to a different way of reacting when those topics come up, you know, or when a situation like that comes up in their life, it's like, whoa, I can pause. I don't have to act violent and be angry at this situation. I could actually have some compassion. I can relate because of whatever I've been through. And I think that people have gotten burned so many times. That's another thing too, is, you know, how many times is enough? How many times do you help them? Well, you help them until they get it. Because well, it's our job. What else are we going to do? You know, you're fed up. Oh, well, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Oh, screw them. They're done. You know, I'm not going to help them ever again. And that's just not how we should be running our lives either. <laughs> I mean, well, I don't not, know. Only, not only is that not nuts, but how many people, in fact, ask the question, what else is there? How right. else could it work? Why is it that that got there and what could we do instead of that? Mm -hmm. And who got hurt? Like one of the big things they talk about, who did you hurt beforehand? One of the questions I did when I did the blind spots study and I interviewed those 53 people who'd gone through the jail and justice system and I wanted to know what happened to them and did they intend to commit the crime in the first place? None of them intended to commit the crime in the first place. And yet they were arrested and they were in the jail system. And I said, well, what did you do that got there? And every single one of them had an emotion, emotional, financial relationship. There was a breakup of some kind that broke the system, broke their world, their comfortable, their space. And it caused them to dysregulate. They got out of sequence and then... They either drank or they made a mistake. They got mm -hmm. angry. Something happened and then it caused something to blow up on them. Mm -hmm. People got hurt. Sometimes people they loved mm -hmm. or they got in a car wreck and they hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, we pile on a bunch of laws that say you broke the, you broke the laws and they didn't intend to break the laws, but they made a mistake and there were consequences so being able to sit with them and say, well, what could have been done before that happened mm -hmm. to have broken the pattern so mm -hmm. that you didn't have to go off? And what's the person who called 911? You know what? They all called to get help for somebody they love. The parents of all these 53 people I interviewed, the mothers, the wives, the girlfriends, the boyfriends, whoever it was that called 911, they called 911 to get help for these people. They didn't call them to call the police. Now, that may be different. I mean, I, I only interviewed 53 people. And there are people who do intend to commit crime. And I'm not excusing them. If there are people right. who are intentionally intentional on it, but the large number of people don't intend to commit a crime, they make a mistake. So what I did when I interviewed them, I said, what could you have done before that happened? And what could have happened before that happened? And what could have happened after that happened that we could change this entire system? So it's really important that we look at 
what else could we do that would get us a different result? If we want to get out of this mess, we have to spin it up and start thinking outside the box. Because right now, we're in a mess in our nation with violence, and we have to start looking at where did it come from originally and stop pulling the plug as early in the game as possible. Do you have any last comments to make, Shanae, before we? Yeah, real quick, I just want to say, you know, in 12-step in recovery programs, they really teach you uh, before you drink, pick up the phone. Right. And I think that if we all had somebody that loved us unconditionally, whether it's a friend, coworker, whoever, when we are at that tipping point, whether it's from anger, from sadness, from, you know, drug use or drinking or whatever it may be, it is important. Pick up the phone, call somebody who knows you, who cares about you, that you can talk to, you can vent to. But it's so hard because for generations, probably hundreds of years, nobody has had that. Nobody has had that positive person that they could call that just tells you, you know, that's probably a dumb idea. <laughs> you know, let's go have coffee instead. Let's go shopping. Let's go. I'll come over to your house, you know, to drop everything that they're willing to drop their whole day just to come and sit with you until you yeah. get through that. It's it's the triggers, right? We talk about triggers in recovery a lot. And when you know your triggers, then you can make a new choice. And so that is really important. And I think that anybody could really use that. I mean, no matter if you're an addict or not an addict, you can use that. When you're stressed at work, people usually call their mom. Well, I'm sorry, but most of us don't have a mom to call. Okay. They're, they're just don't. And that's the reality of our world is people don't have that one person that they can just pick up the phone when they're feeling heavy and call and get help, like just venting, you know? So find that person. And even if you're a public defender, even yep. if you're you're the first responder, yep. even if you've been told, oftentimes people told been told you can't talk about this. Don't mm -hmm. talk about the details of the case. Talk mm -hmm. about the feelings yep. that you feel, because it's not the case. It's not the papers. It's not the numbers. It's what are you feeling that is making it so you can't think straight? What are you yep. feeling that's got you stressed out? that if you could get rid of the feelings, you could move to a better place. It's the feelings we have to work with. And as a society, we're now, we've got to deal with the feelings, not the laws, the rules, and the regulations, not the cops and the, and the more buildings that we can build. It's how do we help our children feel better in a world that's under stress? How do we help the adults we work with feel better under stress? So with that, Shanae, thank you so much for being willing to be on this call. This is Joy Gilfillan with I Change Justice Podcast. Please go to our website. Check it out. Find out what we're up to. We certainly could use more volunteers and more help. Whatever works, let's keep on trucking. Thank you, Shanae. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.